All right, well, go ahead and open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off in the last service, but if you were not in the first service, you will not feel like you missed anything. So let's begin in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And as we saw in the first service, at the time that Paul wrote this epistle, it was a time of great fear in the early church because the first official persecution had been launched against the church and people were dying for their faith. Well, if you read the book of Acts, of course you read there were many episodes of persecution, but they were religious persecution primarily initiated by Jews against the new Christians. But when you come to the book of 2 Timothy, a great event has taken place, the great fire of Rome, which was really created by Nero, but he blamed the early church on the fire. And now Christians are being arrested not as Christians, but as criminals and as arsonists. It's very interesting that you pay attention to who is telling you history. For example, today, if you go to the city of Rome and you have a professional guide and they give you a tour of the Colosseum, and you say, were Christians burned here for their faith? A tour guide in the Colosseum will say, no, no one was killed here for their faith. And that is true because according to the Roman constitution, you could worship anything you wanted. Any faith was possible. Christians were not killed for being Christians. They were charged with crime and with arsony. And so when Christians were killed in the Colosseum or in other places, they were not killed as Christians, but they were killed as low level criminals, particularly those who were behind the fire that burned down the city of Rome, which they had nothing to do with at all, which means fake news is nothing new. There has always been fake news. And now on the basis of fake news, the early church is being arrested. Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. He's taken with the spirit of fear because he knows that if they knock on his door and arrest him, since he is the most visible Christian in the city of Ephesus, his death will be more miserable than anyone else's in order to scare the remaining believers out of their faith back into the pagan temples. And Timothy is simply taken with the spirit of fear about how horrible his death will be. Not only that, he has a spirit of fear about walking in love with his church. Here he is, the pastor of the church, and he is afraid of his congregation because he trusted people, believed they would always be with him, but in this intense moment, people that he believed would be faithful have bailed out, they have left, and he's deeply, deeply wounded. And of course, it has affected his mind. Rather than think soundly, he's thinking with an unsound mind, worrying about what is going to happen to me, to me, to me, to me. He's self-obsessing and moving into a mode of self-preservation and isolation and this is not good. And he has written a letter to Paul who is in prison in Rome. And Paul is at the top of the list of those charged with arsony. He's sitting in prison. The whole city of Rome is rejoicing that one of the chief arsonists has been arrested. And in prison in Rome, Paul has received a letter from Timothy who's not arrested yet. Timothy is a free man writing to a man in prison. But the man in prison does not have a spirit of fear. And therefore he is freer than Timothy, who was walking the streets. Which means fear has nothing to do with where you are. It has to do with what's going on inside here. 
And Timothy is so taken with fear, even though he's free, he's terrified to face his life. And in fact, the word fear that is used in this verse is the Greek word delea. It describes a spirit of cowardice or one who moves into a mode of retreat. As I told the earlier service, the word faith in the New Testament is the word pistis. The form used in the New Testament always describes a force that is moving forward, which means if you're moving in faith, it's like a bullet that's been shot out of a gun. It never moves backward. Faith always takes you forward. And that is why the last verse of Hebrews chapter 10 says, we are not of them that draw back under perdition, but then who believe to the saving of the soul. When you're moving in fear, you're moving into a state of going backward. But faith is always moving forward. But now Timothy, who is supposed to be the spiritual leader leading the charge, is so obsessed with what's going to happen to him that now he's beginning to move into a mode of self-preservation. And Paul says, Timothy, 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 God has not given you this spirit of fear that causes you to move into retreat, but he's given you power, he's given you love, and he's given you a sound mind. The word power, which I shared in the early service, is the Greek word dunamis. The word dunamis, most people say, describes dynamic power, and that's all right. But in fact, the word dunamis was the Greek word used to describe the full might of an advancing army. And Paul was a linguist. He knew that. It was the equivalent of saying, Timothy, if nobody else steps forward with you, you have in you the goods you need. You have within you the full might of an advancing army. It was also the very word used to describe a force of nature, like a hurricane or tornado or an earthquake. If there was an earthquake, they would call it dunamis. If there was a hurricane, they would call it dunamis. If there was a tornado, it was dunamis. Paul, as a linguist, knew that. It was the equivalent of saying, Timothy, you have within you the full might of an advancing army. You have within you everything you need like a hurricane to blow evil out of the way, to tear things up like a tornado, and to shake things up spiritually like a spiritual earthquake. All of that is what God has given you. Then he says, God has given you love. The word love, the Greek word agape, which is what I call high-level love. There are multiple kinds of love, but most people know phileo. Phileo is what I call a low-level love. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's a reciprocal kind of love, which means I'm going to love you as long as you love me back, but the day you disappoint me, I'm out of this relationship. It's a low-level kind of love. But agape is high-level love, which can never be disappointed. It is a love that just simply, freely loves. It has no expectations. It has no strings attached. It is a love that is a self-determined love. I choose to love whether you ever respond to me or not. And therefore, it's a love that cannot be disappointed. And according to Romans chapter 5, this is the kind of love that God has shed abroad in our heart. Well, now, Timothy is emotionally crippled because people have disappointed him. And Paul basically says, Timothy, you're moving in low-level love. You need to step it up a notch. God's given you agape love, which can never be let down and never be disappointed. Then he says, God has given you a sound mind. It describes a mind that is unfettered a mind that thinks logically, a mind that thinks rationally. But when you have a spirit of fear, you don't think logically. You don't think rationally. Your mind becomes a movie screen, and on that movie screen, you imagine every possible thing that could happen to you, even things that could never happen to you. 
You worry what's going to happen in your future. You wonder what's going to happen in this relationship. What if this happens in my finances? You wonder what everybody's saying about you and thinking about you when actually nobody's thinking about you or saying anything about you. That you're so self-obsessed that you're controlled by an unsound mind. But Paul says to Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. And then he adds in verse 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me his prisoner. This word ashamed tells us to what extent the spirit of fear was controlling Timothy. Timothy knew if he remained faithful, it may cost him his life. He was thinking about distancing himself from Jesus and also distancing himself from Paul because Paul's sitting in prison in Rome charged with arsony and he knows if he remains in relationship with his spiritual father, he may be affiliated with that fire and suffer as a result. He's thinking about breaking his relationship with the Lord, walking away from Paul. And Paul said, be not thou therefore ashamed. And in Greek, it is a double negative. Stop it. Stop it now. Don't you dare be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And then he adds, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the promised power of God. He doesn't deny the fact that afflictions are present, but he says, be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Then he adds these words, according to the power of God, according to is from the preposition kata, which carries the idea of something that's dominating, subjugating, or conquering. So you could translate it, be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, being dominated, conquered, subjugated by the power of God, which is a divine promise that if you take a stand that is difficult, God's power will dominate you, it will conquer you, it will subjugate you, so you face that difficulty in the power of God. And then Paul adds in verse 9, who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, not according to, but according to his purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Verse 10, but as now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to these words, who hath what? Abolished death and what? Brought life and immortality to light through the what? Through the gospel. Timothy is fearful of death. And now Paul reminds him, the gospel has abolished death. It's brought life and immortality to light through this great, glorious gospel. And then he adds in verse 11, whereunto, the words whereunto points back to verse 10, unto this great gospel that abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, unto this great gospel. Paul says, I'm appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Then in verse 12, he begins by saying, for the which cause, for what cause? Because I'm appointed a preacher, because I'm appointed an apostle, because I'm a teacher of the Gentiles, because of this, because of the call and the anointing on my life, I also am suffering these things. And here we find that when Paul was sitting in prison in Rome, charged with arsony, he was able to keep it separate in his mind that the things that were happening to him really were not personal. He wasn't personalizing this. He says, I'm suffering these things because I'm appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. The devil is threatened by the anointing that is on my life. That is why I'm in this nonsensical situation. Now, the question arises, what triggers 
a spiritual attack. That's very important. Why was this attack triggered at this moment against the early church and against the apostle Paul? And to answer that question, I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, to a verse that is religiously wrongly taught. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes about the thorn in the flesh. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, it says in the King James Version, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. Well, people read that exalted above measure, and they immediately assumed that Paul had a problem with pride. He was exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. He identifies it as what? The messenger of Satan, which means it was not sent from God. It was sent from Satan. It was a messenger dispatched from Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Well, Denise and I grew up in a denomination where we were taught wrongly that Paul had a pride problem. And because he had a pride problem, God allowed the devil to test him. God released the devil against him. But my friends, who is the author of pride? The devil. You would never release the devil to correct a pride problem. He would just make it worse. And in fact, when you read this in the Greek, it is completely different. For example, the words exalted above measure from the Greek word hooper, I know it's a compound of two words. The first word hooper means over, above, beyond, and depicts something that's way above measure. It conveys the idea of something greater, superior, higher, better, more than a match for utmost, paramount, foremost. It describes something that is first rate, first class, top notch, unsurpassed, unequaled, and unrivaled by any person or anything. The second part of the word ryo depicts a person who's been supremely exalted, one who has been magnified, increased, and lifted up to a place of great influence. So it would be better translated, as a result of all the vast revelations God has given me, I've been raised to a position of great influence that few people possess. And because of these revelations and the impact I'm making, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. People think because it says given that maybe God gave it, but in fact, a better translation would be there was assigned to me a thorn in the flesh. He calls it the messenger of Satan dispatched by Satan himself. And the word thorn, the Greek word scolops, a word which is only used one way, therefore it only has one possible interpretation. It described the dangerously spark sharp stake on which you stuck the head of your decapitated enemy. So now you would translate the verse like this. I'm making such advancements with the gospel. And my position has become so exalted and influential that the devil is after me and wants my head on a stake. The word buffet, the Greek word kolophidzo, the form that is used describes constant beatings with the flesh or constant distractions. And if you want to hear the RIV of this verse, here it is. Because of the phenomenal revelations I have received, and on account of the vast number of these revelations that God has entrusted to me, and to hinder the highly visible progress I'm making, 
A special messenger was sent from Satan to harass me with continuous distractions and headaches. There's no doubt about it. Satan wants my head on a stake and is constantly trying to buffet and distract me in an attempt to keep me from reaching a higher level of visibility and recognition and to sidetrack me from preaching my revelations. That is a totally different take on that verse. But that is consistent with everything else in the New Testament. So now we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, that when you're making progress, when your influence is growing, when you're really making inroads no one else has ever made, the devil doesn't just sit by and twiddle his thumbs. That's when he launches a full-scale attack. And that's what happened in the early church. This was the first governmental persecution against the church, and it was triggered at a time when the church was making the greatest inroads it had ever made. And now Paul says in verse 12, for the witch cause... I'll tell you what's caused my suffering because I'm appointed a preacher, a teacher, an apostle of the Gentiles for the witch cause. I also am suffering these things. And then he adds, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The word ashamed is a Greek word describes a person so embarrassed that his face is blushed red. He feels embarrassed. He feels disgraced. And though Paul is in prison and the whole world is calling him an arson, he knows who he is and he knows who he is not and he refuses to budge from who he is and says, I'm not embarrassed. And likewise, when people begin wagging their tongues about you, it's important for you to know who you are and who you are not or you will be moved what people say about you. And Paul says, I'm not moved, I'm not disgraced, I'm not embarrassed. And then he says... For I know, I know the Greek word oida, knowledge gained by experience. I've had enough experience with God to know a few things. And I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Notice he says he is able. The word able, the Greek word dunatas. It's a form of the Greek word dunamis, but here it describes one that is fully capable, one that is fully sufficient. He is fully able, fully capable, fully sufficient to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And the word keep is the Greek word phuloso, a very specific Greek word in the New Testament used primarily two ways. Number one, it was used to describe a phalanx of Roman soldiers who stood guard around a piece of land around territory. They formed such a guard around that territory that no one could break in and touch that territory. Secondly, it was used to describe the uninterrupted vigilance of shepherds who were assigned to watch over their sheep. And now Paul uses this word and says, he is fully capable, fully sufficient to stand guard over me. I am his territory. He is watching over me. I am his sheep. And he has uninterrupted vigilance in his watching and keeping me. And he is able to keep what I have committed unto him. Everybody say committed. The word committed is the Greek word paratho. It's a compound of two words, the word para and the word tithemi. The word para means to pull up alongside of as close as you can get. The second part of the word is tithemi, which means to place something. But when you compound the two words together, 
The King James Version has it as the word committed, but it really is the idea to deposit, para, to pull as close as you can to something else, antithemy, to make a deposit into that object. And when I read this word, I always think of when I was a boy. My dad got paid on Thursday nights, and every Thursday night we went shopping, and Daddy made his deposit at the Sand Springs State Bank. And back in those days, there were no drive-through tellers, so the only way you could make a deposit was what? You put your car in park, you get out, walk up to the side of the building, para as close as you can be, you open the depository drawer, put your money in, deposit it, and when you close it, your money is so safe, nobody can touch it. In fact, once you've made your deposit, you can't even extract the money yourself. It is sealed, it is safe, it is deposited. And that is the word Paul uses here to describe what happened the day he got saved. When I got saved, para, I came along Christ to me. I placed my life in him. I am so secure in him. Nobody can touch me. I can't even extract myself. I deposited me and everything that I am in him. And that's also true of every one of us. We're in him. And then he adds, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Let's backtrack and go to that word persuaded. The word persuaded tells us a lot. It's the word patho, P-E-I-T-H-O. It's the root for the word faith. But when it's this word persuaded, the Greek word patho, it describes a person who has every logical reason to believe one thing. But... He persuades himself to believe something else. He has every logical reason to believe one outcome is going to take place, but rather than accept that outcome, he coaxes himself or talks himself into another position. It can be translated to coax, to sway, to persuade. Now, why does Paul use this word? Because he's sitting in prison. No one is with him. We all like it when we have somebody we can reach out to or someone we can call and we can say, please encourage me. But what if you're in prison and there's no one you can turn to? What if you're at home and none of your friends are answering the phone and you are experiencing despair? What do you do in a moment like that? Then you have to do what Paul did. This word persuasion describes self-talk. The facts were very negative. So Paul Patho talked himself into a position of faith. He swayed himself from what he felt to a position of faith that was rock solid. He talked himself into faith. I call this self-talk. Self-talk. Where we're told in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the faith comes how? By hearing. And hearing. The Greek says hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. But what if you don't have anybody to speak faith to you? Well, you have a mouth and you have ears. And in that moment, you have to speak to yourself. There's a time when you have to quit listening to yourself and you have to start speaking to yourself. Your mind will believe what your ears hear. And if there's nobody else to speak the truth to you, then start running your mouth and talk yourself into faith, whether you feel it or not. Say it and say it and say it, let your ears hear it and hear it and hear it. And Paul in this verse tells us he walked himself from what he felt into what he decided to believe. Self-talk. You know, the last two years, 
I went through a really difficult ordeal where we live on the other side of the world. It's an ordeal that was so difficult, I can't even tell you the details. But let me just tell you, it was the worst news I had ever received in my entire life. Something legal had taken place that actually had nothing to do with me. <laughs> it was as nonsensical as this charge against the Apostle Paul. And Denise and I found ourselves in a room with our leaders and a room full of attorneys discussing my future. What they said was so grim that I finally looked across the table to our attorney who is the equivalent of Jay Sekulow, but he's the Russian version of Jay Sekulow. And I said, just tell me, what are the chances that what has happened to me can be reversed? He said, Brother Rick, what has happened to you has never been reversed, not one time for one person on any level from any sphere of life for 31 years. And the chances of it being reversed for you, he held up his hands. He said, zero. What he said about me was so fatal that it felt like the oxygen was just sucked out of the room. Denise and I got in the car with one of my associates who was driving us home. Moscow's a big, big city. Every weekday, we have about 30 million people in Moscow, so traffic is big. It takes a long time to go everywhere, and on that particular day, we were just crawling along in traffic. I was seated on the right side of the front seat of the car. My driver was here. Denise was in the back seat. She was crying. I knew Denise couldn't talk because what we heard was so dismal. I turned to my friend. The driver tried to talk with him. He said, Pastor, please, I, I can't speak. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm unable to speak. Well, who am I going to talk to? Denise can't talk. He can't talk. So I decided it was time to talk to myself. <laughs> Self-talk. And I began rehearsing everything I've been through in my life that was supposed to be impossible. When God asked me to build buildings that I had no money to build. When God asked me to build a TV network in a world where there had never been any Christian broadcasting at all. Just walking year by year, event by event, just rehearsing, 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 just talking to myself because I didn't have anybody else to talk to me. And by the time I was finished, it was like that bad report just melted right in front of me. If God could do all those things, then God's going to take care of this one too. You've got to use your mouth, do some self-talk, and remind yourself, he is able, fully sufficient, fully capable to keep you against that day. And I will tell you that what happened to me was not just reversed, it was gloriously reversed. The first time for anybody in 31 years. But what if I had said, me, oh my, I guess I need to go home and pack my bags. I'm going to be deported. This is the end of our life. This is the end of our ministry. If I had checked out, I would have lost the victory. But there's a time when you have to lay hold of the truth and run your mouth in the right direction. Self-talk. Well, Timothy has a spirit of fear. And when you have a spirit of fear, 
you are tempted to say any old thing that comes through your head. You may even say, I just need to say this and get it off my chest. Well, if you say it and get it off your chest, say it once and don't say it again. And then ask the Lord to forgive you for being faithless and align your mouth in the right direction. Timothy is probably saying, oh, I don't know what it's going to be like when they arrest me. Where will they take me? I've been so hurt by my church. He's just running his mouth in the wrong direction. And that's why in verse 13, Paul says, hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. The words hold fast in Greek, ekete from echo, which means have, hold, possess, never let loose of. It describes intentionality, a decision that I'm going to hold this, I'm going to embrace this, not let anybody, including me, take it away from me. I'm going to have, hold, and possess the form of sound words. The Greek says words that produce soundness. And the word soundness, the Greek word hugiaino, describes a healthy state of being. And here we find again that what we say has a great determining factor in what happens to us. And rather than just run in your mouth and speak in every fear, there's a time when you have to say, put it all on pause. I'm going to have, hold, and possess. Hang on to words that are right that are going to produce the right result in my life and this is why James chapter 3 tells us that our tongue is like the rudder of a ship. What you do with your tongue determines where you're going to go and where you're going to end up. And now Paul says, get a grip on your mouth and make sure you're speaking words that are going to produce the right kind of results. Then he says, which thou hast heard of me, of me in Greek, the word para. When you were alongside of me, living at my side, walking with me, traveling with me, how did you hear me talk? Well, now wait, go over to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, But you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, and what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. But according to 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 and 11, Timothy was alongside of Paul, fully knew everything about him, saw him in every imaginable situation. And now when you come back to chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Hold the form of fast words, sound words, which you've heard of me. Timothy, you've been with me in every imaginable situation, and you have seen it doesn't matter what's going on, I keep a rein on my mouth and speak words that are filled with, he says, faith and love. Well, that's what Timothy needed. He was feeling faithless. Rather than speak faithless words, he needed to speak words of confidence, words of faith. He was having a hard time loving. He needed to speak words of love and put words in his mouth that were love words. And I just want to say a word about what we say. Denise and I didn't come to the United States for two years due to COVID and these other reasons. This time since we came to America, I've really been disturbed about something. Actually, many things in the United States disturb me. I hope they disturb you as well. But one thing that disturbs us is people, believers, even pastors, who are in their 60s talking about themselves like they're old. That disturbs me. 
Maybe it disturbs me because I'm 64. <laughs> but this is such a trick of the devil. They say, well, I'm just getting older. Maybe I need to start thinking about my replacement. You know, the younger people don't really don't want to listen to me. Well, that is their mistake because they need you. And what a trick of the devil. When you get to 60 and 70 and 80, you finally have lived a life, life to know what you're talking about. You're finally authorized to speak, and then you stop. At the moment when you have more to offer than you've ever had in your life, and it's no longer theory, now it's life experience, and you're convinced. Well, I'm just getting old. And what makes it worse is these ridiculous TV commercials. Ay, 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 ay. We don't watch a lot of television, but Denise likes Shark Tank. <laughs> so we'll turn on Shark Tank, and every advertisement is a medication for this, and a medication for that, and a medication for this, and a medication for that, and another medication for this, and another medication to take care of what happened to you when you took that medication. It's like the whole country is drugged and is being brainwashed that it's old. Mute the commercials. Mute them. You don't need to listen to that garbage because it goes into you and then you begin speaking it and you're going to get what you say. I say to pastors who are in their mid-60s, well, I'm just getting to middle age, maybe a little over the edge. I need to probably turn it over to somebody else. You know what I say to them? And what are you going to do for the next 30 years of your life? People are living to be 90 these days. You're going to sit around and watch TV all day. If you do that, for sure you're going to get old and you're going to die really quick. And the benefit you have to offer will never be experienced. And to those of you that are 50 and older, I just want to encourage you, get a grip on your mouth. Quit saying you're old. Quit saying it hurts to get old. Start talking about the fact that you're going to live a wrong race. You're going to run as long as you can and take care of your body. But what we say has great impact in our lives. But then you come to verse 14, and we find out that we're not in this battle by ourselves. He says, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwells in us. The word committed in verse 14 is identically the same word committed used in verse 12, paratho, which means at the same time that you pulled up alongside of Christ and deposited yourself permanently in him, he was permanently depositing something in you. He placed something in you called the Holy Ghost. And this verse says, keep that good thing. The word keep, again, the Greek word philoso, just like Jesus watches guard over us because we are his territory. Just like Jesus as a shepherd watches over us as his sheep, we are to hover over what God has entrusted to us. We are to guard it. We are to protect it. And we are to do it, he says, by the Holy Ghost, which, what does it say? Dwelleth in us. The word dwelleth is the Greek word, a form of the word oikos. The Greek word for a house or a residence. It depicts somebody that has moved into a new home. And they like that home so much. They put their own rugs on the floor. They hung their own pictures on the wall, moved a big easy chair in. They have settled down with no intention to ever leave, which means 
Our heart is not a hotel. Our heart is a home. The Holy Spirit moved in. He's a permanent resident. He has no intention to go anywhere. And that means whatever we're looking at right now, we're not dealing with it by ourselves, but we're looking at that thing with the Holy Ghost who lives in us. And if we will embrace him, he will empower us to push anything out of the way. We have to engage our mouth. We have to engage our memory. We have to stir ourselves up, as he says in the first six verses of this chapter. And as we do so, we can push anything out of the way. But notice in this verse, is not just what God does for us, but our participation is required. We've got to remember the right thing. We've got to have self-talk. We've got to hold fast the form of sound words. We've got to keep it by the Holy Ghost. And if we are willing to participate, we have everything we need to stay in power, love, and to maintain a sound mind. That is what was on my heart to share with you this morning.